Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and by Tony Hodson from the Coach's Voice platform. Brighton are in the FA Cup semi-finals and the seventh in the Premier League. That's extraordinary when you consider the system conspires against them. I've been to see Chief Executive Paul Barber to see how it's done. He, of course, used to work for Tottenham. With Champions League qualification under threat in post-Conte chaos, they could certainly do with him now, couldn't they, Paul? They could. Even he would struggle at Spurs, though, Mike, because there doesn't appear to be you know, a strategy, an identity, a plan. Everything is done minute to minute. Fans have had enough of that, really. And I think Paul Barber, brilliant though he is, would probably walk in there and say, well, you know, what are we going to do? We need a plan. We can't just keep going month to month. Because when you look at it, let's survey the wreckage, if we could, Tony. They've lost the manager. Their sporting director is subjected to a a worldwide ban by FIFA. They're now under the guidance of... Ryan Mason, who's a rookie coach, and Christian Stellini, Conte's erstwhile assistant, who, you know, let's not forget, Stellini's only got 16 serious C games as a manager. Could all this cost them top four? The short answer is yes, and the long answer is probably yes. Kudos first, Mike, for getting the word erstwhile into the into the chat so early in the piece. But I mean, this is a real risk on the, on the part of Daniel Levy, and it, and, and it could prove disastrous. As things stand, it looks like, and I'm being conservative, it looks like there are five teams fighting for two Champions League places. Everyone assumes that Man United will take the first of those, which, although not a done deal, is, is probably fair enough. That leaves four teams with, with genuinely realistic hopes of taking the final spot. The question that I thought Levy faced was whether Tottenham would garner more points between now and the end of the season with Antonio Conte in charge, kind of a you know proven winner, but with seemingly increasingly toxic influence on both the club and the dressing room, or by bringing in someone new to have an immediate impact with all the inevitable chat around a return for Mauricio Pochettino. And as it was, he went, he went for an in-between option of somebody or bodies who are already at the club. Stellini's overseen some impressive results in, in Conte's absence this season, and Mason is clearly highly thought of, probably more as a person than a coach at this point in his career. But both are massively untested in a situation like this. You know, they've got, they're fourth at the moment, they have points in the bag, but they've got a worse goal difference than 
the other three teams supposedly battling out with them for the fourth place. And they're going to need to be much better than they have been recently to fend all, all three of those teams off. And the odds at the moment are probably against that happening. Mm. It's a pretty firm assumption, Paul, that this couldn't have been handled worse by everyone concerned. Conte's reputation has been damaged. Obviously, it now looks like he was a wrong fit for the club and the ownership. Daniel Levy is holed below the waterline. You know, you mentioned earlier on about Paul Barber looking at that and thinking, no, thank you. What about managers who have to go in there? Yeah, the big date really is 19th of November 2019 when Maurizio Pochettino was sacked. And frankly, it's been chaos since then. They appointed, obviously, Mourinho to take over. Mourinho was the, was the antithesis of Spurs in many ways. Then they had that debacle of Nuno Espirito Santo lasting four months. Conte was a reactive appointment to that because the board were under so much pressure after the Santo reign collapsed that they went for a proven winner. They overpaid him. Reports that Conte was earning £15 million a year. They thought they could buy themselves some peace for a while. They did. It's collapsed in on them again. But if you trace that from Mourinho through Ryan Mason, Tempore to Nuno to Conte, there is no pattern there. There is no plan. There's no identity. There's no There's no attempt to do what Brian and Herb Albion are doing, for example. Um, so, so any manager would look at that and say, look, well, Harry Kane's probably going to leave in the summer. The board doesn't invest as much as the other top clubs in the team. The fans are restive. There is this pattern of underachievement, a culture problem that Conte pointed to in that extraordinary outburst that was obviously part of his exit strategy. So beyond earning a decent wage, why would you go to Spurs when you don't have the tools to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. And with Kane in mind, Tony, he'd obviously have a a long list of suitors. Do you expect him to leave? I don't see why he wouldn't. I don't see why he wouldn't. I mean, the age he is now and and where he is in his career, you probably think it's, it's two or three seasons too late. But equally... When he stayed previously, it felt like maybe there have been reasons to stay. This is probably the lowest, since Kane has become the world-class talent of the years, this is probably the lowest ever the club the club have been at. There isn't that stability above him. The squad doesn't really convince if somebody comes in with, with, with a decent, I'm not sure of his contract situation, um, but if somebody comes in with a half-decent offer, he, he just, I mean, he's desperate. He must be, if I was him, I'd be absolutely desperate to leave. And there'll be plenty of suitors who will, will take him on, no, no matter if he's 30, pushing that. Then, you know, he's still got, in theory, three, four, five seasons at the top level. He looks after himself. He's an incredible professional. We've seen before that when he does have blips in form, they tend not to last very long. And when he does come back into it, he comes back with a real bang. So in terms of teams that need an immediate short-term impact from a world-class striker, there'll be a few out there who wouldn't say no. If I was going to be desperate to go. I'm sure you um, saw Matt Law's tweet the other day, just going back to the manager question. Over the past 20 years, Levy has hired 10 permanent coaches who between them have won 61 trophies before and after managing Spurs. Between them all in that time, they have won one trophy at Tottenham. So that's an incredible statistic. And I also thought it was significant that Julian Nagelsmann happens to get sacked by Bayern Munich. So suddenly you know, you get this idea that suddenly Spurs are all over him. So they obviously hadn't... Julian Nagelsmann suddenly only entered their orbit because he'd just been sacked by Bayern Munich and he ends up in the market at 5-4 to favourite to be the next Tottenham manager. And that's that shows how 
reactive the club has been. You know, that that's not a strategy, is it? That's just a reaction to a, a kind of potentially fortuitous sacking in Germany. Yeah, well, as we'll talk about later, you know, that's all too typical of the way football is run or mishandled or whatever you want to say, because, you know, there are basic business principles that are just being ignored in football, despite all the money. But anyway, that more of that later. They're going to be last back from the international break, Tony, at Everton on Monday. That's not a place to get all spursy, is it? No, I mean, <laughs> especially not with an Everton team now managed by Sean Dyche. I was looking at Everton's last 10 games, got 10 games left. Six of those games against teams currently in the top nine, including the both, both Manchester teams, Newcastle and Brighton which is a really quite a tricky run-in. But the situation they're in, they have to finish in the top six of a nine-team mini-league. And, and Sean Dyche, as opposed to, say, maybe David Moyes at West Ham and, and Brendan Rodgers at Leicester, they have an experienced Premier League operator who knows how to keep a team with, with limited threat up. For Everton's point of view, a fit Dominic Calvert-Lewin would be a massive boost. But you get the feeling if they need to go into the last two games of the season, which are against Wolves and Bournemouth, they need to get something, you can bet that they will. As discussed, it's a, just a terrible game for Tottenham to face at this point. The mood will probably have lifted in the wake of Conte's departure. And as discussed, Harry Kane is, is fit and well and firing. But it's not a game I'd, I'd be confident in making any prediction. And you know me, Mike, I love a prediction, a confident prediction. <laughs> um, I'd fancy there might be a few bookings, but other than that, I'm, I'm not sure what to expect. Yeah, well, you know, if you're looking at Dominic Calvin-Lewin as a reliability factor, we see him less often than... Halley's Comet at the moment, don't we? Paul, Sean Dyche, you know, there was a, a bit of sniffiness, strange sniffiness about him while he was out of a job. It's a good appointment, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Um, he's, you know, uh, he's never had the chance to do the other half of the job, which is to, you know, well, he did get to Europe, didn't he? But, you know, he, he hasn't consistently been in the top half of the league, but he's, we already know that he's, he's, extremely accomplished in the bottom half of the league and particularly keeping teams in the division. So I can't think of a better candidate than Sean Dyche to manage Everton at the moment. You know, it would have been easy to go and find the next cab off the rank coach in Europe and, and you know, bet the farm on them being, you know, brilliant for the next 10 years. But given what Everton have been through, the, the turmoil, the consistent turmoil, it was much better to get a proven Premier League manager who'd give you the maximum chance of staying in the league, given all the money that's involved. So, And Deitch is starting to show that he's capable of doing that at Everton. I mean, I think he's won three of his eight and drawn two. So what would that be? 11 points from 24. You know, that's a survival pattern, isn't it? That's That's going to keep you in the league if you maintain that run of results. Yeah, you'll need no reminding, Tony. Liverpool, games at Manchester City and Chelsea in the space of four days. Is it fair to say the season's already been defined, but it's yet to be decided? I think that's probably fair, yeah. I think that is probably fair. The next three games, because there's Arsenal as well, after after City and Chelsea, mm. it's, it's quite a run. So I guess the, the question mark immediately against City is... is how will Liverpool cope with Haaland, who we assume is going to be fit to play after missing some, some international action? Um, well, I would stress as an impartial journalist and a Liverpool fan that he's zero goals from two starts against Liverpool this season. Questions for Liverpool, you know, it is all about there's no trophies to play for. There's just getting that fourth spot, which is huge. 
I mean, it's, it's crazy to think we're at a situation where I'm saying, how will the midfield cope without Stefan Bajetic, who at the start of the season was largely unknown outside Liverpool? The reality for Liverpool and, and Jurgen Klopp, who I'm sure will be listening, might not relish hearing this, is that Liverpool look, currently look like uh, an effective counter-attacking team that lack, lack the physicality required to run opposition into the ground as they have done in previous seasons, or indeed to press and counter-press effectively enough to, to stop teams getting in behind their famous slash infamous high line. So <laughs> weirdly for Liverpool, they're in a situation where they're now struggling to break low blocks down against teams who are supposedly inferior. So in theory, facing teams that play with the quality and confidence to go at them, such as Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal, you know, they've got the players and the weapons to hurt them. Darwin Nunes is probably going to come back. Luis Diaz is nearing fitness. Salah, Gakpo, Jota are all fit. They've got loads of threat. The question is whether they've got the legs and the energy to compete with kind of younger, fitter teams going the other way. That will that will ultimately decide, I think, whether Liverpool sneak into the top four or not. Mm. Do you think we'll be seeing over the next few weeks, Paul, a different incarnation of Jurgen Klopp? We see the ebullience. You know, this is a guy who's got to be in the trenches now for the next six weeks, isn't he? Yes, uh, I think he, if you look at them in the table, they're in a, a stronger position than Newcastle, I think, to take Tottenham's fourth position in the league and, and to, to get into the Champions League. You know, they've been they've been off it this season. The intensity's been lacking. The, the energy's been lacking, as Tony said. So that worries you. But as a group of players, they're quite capable of getting themselves together sufficiently to go and snatch that fourth position. And, and then I think in the summer, there's a really big rethink. This is what we haven't seen with Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, there was a, there was a huge restructuring at the start where he, where he built this current team, this successful team, but now he's got to rebuild it in the way that, you know, Ferguson, for example, did numerous times at Manchester United. That's his challenge now. And as we all know, he needs to buy a new midfield. That's, that's really what they need to be doing in the market in the summer. Mm. I mentioned that, Tony, almost to make a contrast with Pep Guardiola, because mm. it seems to me his, his squad management across this season has been exceptional even to the extent of almost, it seems to me, preparing Kevin De Bruyne for the business end of the season. Yeah, I wonder whether that's maybe giving him a bit more credit than he deserves. I think if you ask a lot of City fans, they question quite what level De Bruyne is at consistently now. Although, as we know, he's still probably at his best, still probably the best player in the Premier League. Um, and we've, we've, we've been here with City and Guardiola before, though, haven't we? They, they, they come on so strong in the second half of seasons and and they rarely let up. It's how they fended Liverpool off in two relentless title races. I'd, I'd be slightly concerned about them if I was a City fan this season. They've still got a lot of work to do to bridge the gap on an Arsenal team that don't look massively keen on throwing it away. And they've got some big tests this month, Liverpool and Arsenal coming either side of a, of a FA Cup semi against Sheffield United and obviously the two-legged court final against Bayern Munich and uh, old foe Thomas Tuchel. So they look pretty fit and well, though. You're right, De Bruyne is in form. Haaland, obviously, is fit. Phil Foden had some issues. But the squad, I don't know. I feel like there are more questions around City than they usually are at this stage of the season. I'm not sure the squad has a huge amount of pace. The left-back situation isn't ideal with Cancelo out of the picture. And Edison hasn't been probably at his best form this season. So I think I keep when I look at City and their form is good, but I think I keep looking back to that Nottingham Forest draw in February where they concede a late equaliser against a team they dominated for pretty much the entire game. I just think that isn't the kind of result that would have happened in the last two title-winning seasons. And if they've still got that kind of result in them for the rest of this season, they're going to struggle to catch Arsenal. Mm. Chelsea, Paul, they've got Aston Villa 
before they face Liverpool. Do you think realistically the top four is out of reach for them? Yes, I do really. I'm, I'm sure the club has already accepted that. They'll be hoping for a, you know, an epic confrontation with Real Madrid in the in the Champions League. They'll beating Real Madrid, knocking them out would be, I think, would protect Graham Potter a great deal. Uh, the, the the finishing position is now going to be disappointed. I think that's that's obvious, and it's all really about the the fundamentals of of them trying to decide what their best team is, how they want to play and how to deal with this enormous squad of big names and, and which ones to keep, which ones to discard, how to maintain squad harmony. And, you know, I'm sure they'll be thinking about whether Graham Potter is, is the manager to do that from next season onwards. But for now, they need, a, they need a really sort of heroic display in the Champions League. And they need some consistency and a pattern of selection and a pattern of results until the end of the season to calm everybody down. Yeah. I think we are all expecting, you know, clear out in the summer, Tony. Who do you see as the candidates to be discarded? I mean, it's take your pick, isn't it? I mean, there's so much chatter around Mason Mount leaving the club, but if I was there, if I was Graham Potter, Mason Mount's one of the players I definitely wouldn't want to be losing. The, the problem is, as often with businesses, if you need to make cuts, it's the last ones in that are the first ones out, but they've spent so much money it's just, I mean, Paul's right. It's impossible to spend that amount of money on that many players and A, keep everyone happy and B, importantly, build any real momentum or consistency with selection. I mean, at times this season, it's looked like a really bonkers football manager season, you know, with, with no real sense of who's making the final call on recruitment and why. And this is just com- the complete opposite. Paul knows this well, you know, as a Brighton fan, this is the complete opposite of what Graham Potter is and what he does. Potter is an extremely good coach who, given time, I'm sure would work it out. But if you assume they don't win the Champions League this season, and I, I, I don't think they will, then how long does he get to make sense of a squad that just feels so bloated? I mean, there, I was, I've done a genuine couple of double takes this season when play, I've seen players at Chelsea. Noni Madueke and Dennis Zakaria are two names that strike me. It's just, I've just I'd forgotten they were there. <laughs> because we're just they're seen so little. It's like, why are they, Madueke costs 30 million euros. What? For, to what end? It's just it's just absolutely mad. Mm, yeah, and we've got Mudrick, of course. He's a legend in his own lunchtime at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, I keep a list of um, incredibly expensive wingers uh, who uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this this fashion of buying wingers for seventy or eighty million pounds fascinates me. I, I just wonder which um, which uh, metric is telling the scouting departments that that's a good investment in in players in that position. I mean, Nicolas Pepe, Anthony, (laughs) Jadon Sancho, and now Mudrick. I mean, Mudrick struggled against... Kyle Walker dealt with him very easily in the England game the other night. And and I was looking at him thinking, okay, there's a guy who's really low on confidence. But he's going to need a lot more than speed if he's going to justify that price. And he's going to, you know, be uh, an established Chelsea starter. I can't see in him yet what he's got beyond that pace. Pace counts for a lot, but you don't buy pace for £80 million pounds or £70 million. Pounds. So that's a classic example of a, of a player being bought. Well, their scouting department would tell you why, but, you know, those players, as Tony said, that Chelsea have brought in, and it's a huge amount of money. Which which one of those players, which who among them are going to get, you know, really justify those price tags? and actually contribute in the way that the great Chelsea players in great Chelsea teams have over many years. It's an incredibly difficult conundrum for Graham Potter and the whole club uh, over the next six months. 
I mean, even when mm. even when Mourinho was doing wonders when he first arrived at Chelsea, there was a limited number of signings in core positions. But you know, Mourinho famously likes to work with a small squad. Just, just going back to your point about wingers, Paul, we're kind of drifting off topic a little bit. But I do wonder whether you know the, the modern development, whether the four three three has been has, has been such a prevalent formation in recent seasons. And you look at even a team like Bayern back in the day with Robert and Ribery playing in those wide positions, having such an influence. And of course. You look at what Liverpool have done with Salah and Mane. You just think whether all teams are kind of trying to replicate that impact, and it, it is it is very difficult because you have to be a certain type of player. And Mane and Salah, for example, players I know very well, are both blessed with huge amounts of pace at their peak, but they bring so much else. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just Franz Car, which is what one for the kids there. <laughs> yeah, Nottingham Forest people. When we look at Manchester United, Paul. I just, I just want to focus, actually, just initially on Marcus Rashford. Perhaps not for the, the reasons that you probably imagine, which is this whole scorpion dance that's going on around a potential new contract. It's the way we regard him, or he is regarded. You know, there was, there was fallout from him not being with the England squad. And by the way, why do we in the media talk about it in ancient terms of him, quotes, jetting off, close quotes, to the US to do a bit of shopping. And that's surely sensible workload management. And now, you know, this morning, he's having to combat stories that he's asking for half a million pounds a week. Is there some sort of agenda against him? Uh, yes, well, it's a good question. You'd have to ask the um, some of the authors of those, some of those pieces, I suppose, Mike, but... He is endlessly fascinating, and I, and I take your point about the trip to New York because it was interesting that initially Gareth Southgate said, well, we haven't seen that much of him or, you know, he's missed quite a few England squads, which sounded pointed. But then after the game, he was very careful to say the opposite, which was that he had no problem with Rashford going to New York, and, and that's how players players are very good at managing their downtime. These days, it's not a kind of downtime that we would recognise because we wouldn't go to New York if, you know, if we had a couple of days off because we couldn't afford it. But, you know, it, it, Southgate was, was very careful to say that's fine. And he made the point that after the Ukraine game, most of those England players would disappear for a couple of days because they had that opportunity. So he seemed to be giving Rashford a pass there. And I, and I thought, as you did, if he's legitimately injured and he's pulled out the squad because he can't play... What is the problem with him flying to New York and having a look round and, you know, de-stressing, to use the modern terminology? Uh, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it at all. And ultimately, with him, his returns, his performances, his goals, insulate him against any criticism, as far as I'm concerned. And as for the, as for the contract uh, negotiations, well, I suppose... I don't know what he's asking for, but I suppose... You know, those Manchester United players, the core players, the players have been there a long time and have carried the heavy load. I've seen a lot of overpaid players come and go during the mismanagement years at Manchester United. And they're probably led to think, well, you know, it's about time that our efforts got recognised rather than the money always going to the star names who come and flatter to deceive for 12 months and then leave. Mm. Well, United are at Newcastle on Sunday, Tony. Repeat of the League Cup final, same result? By no means guaranteed, I don't think. I think at the time of that final, Newcastle, obviously they they, they were missing uh, Nick Pope in goal, which in the end didn't contribute much to their defeat. They, they, they were just outplayed on the day. 
But they were going through a little bit of a blip when they'd formed Bruno Guimaraes and missed a few games and they'd lost a bit of momentum. They bounced back with two, two big wins late, not necessarily deserved wins against Wolves and Nottingham Forest, which is going to steady the ships. And actually, in terms of points per game, they are they're the team in pole position to claim fourth. I, I, they they don't have the worst running. Some of the other teams have some tough games, um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be. I think Paul, you said that you you thought Liverpool were in a good spot or even in a better spot than Newcastle. I'm not convinced about that, but they'll need Miguel Almiron back from injury quickly. He's been huge for them this season, but having both Callum Wilson and Alexander Isak fit and fine for the rest of the season will help them. They've also only got seven fixtures in April, which by the by comparison to some of the other teams is is relatively chilled. I think United have nine. So it's a big one for them. It's a game they'll definitely not want to lose at home in front of a big crowd. United have obviously got a lot of games coming up this season. They've got Europe to focus on, a cup semi-final against against Brighton, who seems to pop up at every every talk corner in this conversation. But so yeah, a <laughs> uh, very long-winded way of saying no, I, I don't think it'll be the same result. I expect Newcastle to get to get something from this. Mm. There are still murmurings of discontent about the nature of Newcastle's funding. Paul, do you think that's destined to be an enduring distraction from Eddie Howe's excellent team organisation and development? Yeah, I think part of the problem, Mike, is that this this false, dare I say it, sort of um, firewall was was constructed between uh, the Saudi state, the sovereign investment fund and the purchase of Newcastle United. So the Premier League expected us all to believe that they were separate and that the the Saudi state wasn't really running Newcastle United. In fact, didn't really own Newcastle United. And everybody knows damn well that the Saudi public investment fund and the Saudi state are inseparable. They are one and the same. Therefore, we're always going to be looking at Newcastle and asking where the money is coming from and how much of it there will be. And I think that's a legacy of of the deal itself and this attempt to portray the deal as something other than what it actually was. And I think our vigilance, you know, is is completely justified. Mm. Well, looking at the biggest picture, it would be encouraging for a club of Brighton's strategy and status to gatecrash the top six, if not the top four. As I mentioned to Paul Barber, they've come so far from such a low ebb. Welcome, Paul. I'd like to begin with all our yesterdays. I was at that match at Hereford in 1997 when Brighton drew to avoid going out of the league. Now, in such an elitist, money-driven world, could another club finding itself in that position ever hope to emulate what you guys have done here? Well, I'd certainly like to think so, because it was a combination of, of different people working together in different ways over quite a long period of time to take us from that point of precipice, if you like, to where we are today. The fans, the community, two very successful and determined local business people in Dick Knight and then later Tony Bloom, a big local employer in American Express, and then a lot of dedicated staff that allowed the club effectively to, first of all, survive, flourish in an era in the lower leagues and then with Tony's support build a new stadium build a new training ground and get back to the top level of English football I don't think it's impossible for another club to do that if you look at Brentford our visitors this coming Saturday 
they've had a similar experience, not quite as extreme perhaps, mm. but they've certainly had a similar experience. Fulham have had some difficult times. Southampton have had difficult times. So I don't think it's impossible for clubs to repeat what we've done. Yeah, but I think people on neutrals <coughs> relate to this club because of the dream it represents. Without meritocracy, that dream dies, doesn't it? It does. And that's why we were so against the concept of a European Super League, the idea that you could have a small number of clubs that were guaranteed entry to a lucrative competition at the expense of just about everyone else. And, you know, we feel that the meritocracy is, is probably the beauty of, of our system, the English game, the European game. And to take that away would certainly take away the dream for fans of clubs like ours, for sure. Mm. But does that meritocracy exist? I think it does. I think if you look at this season, you know, where we are currently and hopefully where we will end up finishing in a highest league position, we've been able to sort of land a few blows on some of the bigger <laughs> clubs, despite, you know, a very big disparity in our budgets and, our, and, and the size of our playing squads and the depth of our squads. I think you have to find a way to be smarter. You have to find a way to compete in different ways. And that can come from the success of your academy. It can come from the success of your recruitment. It can come from finding top coaches who find ways to beat the bigger teams in sort of games. So we believe the meritocracy is alive and well, but obviously we're hoping very much that the rules and regulations that are put around the leagues and other competitions help us in that regard. Mm. You know, you're you know, steeped in the game's administration you know, externally from here. You're on the FA Council, you're the Premier League rep, on the uh, professional game board. So you've got a good sense of almost the scope of the influence domestic administration can have. What would you say to people like myself who look at football administration and say, it's not really fit for the purpose of the modern world, which is being reshaped by you know, huge geopolitical and financial powers? I mean, I think we have to accept that some reform is due. I mean, I've personally believed for a long time that the complexity of how we distribute money in the game is just simply too much for most people to get to grips with, even people that work in the game. It is highly complex. People don't fully understand how the money flows from the top of the game to the bottom of the game. Most people believe it's nothing like the levels it currently is. And I think most people would be shocked if they fully understood just how much money already does flow. That's not to say it give, can't be Give improved. me a figure then, how much well, do you think it goes I, I think in, in, in terms of the, of the game itself, you know, 100 million plus pounds already flows down to the lower levels of the game. But it's not just about the actual money. It's about the support. It's about the loaning of players. It's about the support for coach development. It's about the support for the women's game. It's about the support for infrastructure and facilities. The amount of advice that goes on behind the scenes and support that goes on behind the scenes between clubs. So much of that is hidden from view, but is really important to the way the game works. And the ecosystem of the game is really important because it's as important for Brighton in the Premier League for League Two clubs to do well and to prosper as it is for Brighton itself to do well at the top level because so many of our, our players will ultimately either come from that level of football or end up playing in that level of football or be developed at that level of football. So the pyramid is important to us. And I think some suggestions sometimes that Premier League clubs are not interested in the rest of the game are not true and not fair because actually we all rely on it. Mm. At that biggest picture, though, you look at UEFA signalling, let's put it like that, they're going to be quite happy with co-owned clubs playing in the same competition. It, there's a direction of travel here, which probably 
you know, you look at, I don't know, a sport like Formula One, which is, becomes a global, highly elitist sport. You know, if, if you're looking 10 years in the future, where do you see football? Well, I'd like to think that the pyramid will be still in place. The meritocracy will still be in place. I'd like to think that we would have actually improved the way we communicate what we already do within the game for the game. I'd like to think that the competitions as they are will be intact. I'd like to think the European Super League won't be here. I'd like to think that international football will still be important. And that's not me just being a bit of a dinosaur and a traditionalist. That's me wanting to protect what I believe are very, very good things for our country and for our sport. And, you know, we talk a lot about the clubs that have been lost. And every single time a club is lost and a community suffers because of that, clearly we're all very, very disappointed. But the number of clubs that have been lost since the turn of the Second World War is minimal. The number of clubs that have actually grown and flourished and had ups and downs is the majority. So I think we've got to be really careful with change that we don't actually damage what we've already got that has been good and is getting better and is admired across the world. But if we can make improvements and if there are reforms that help us do that, then clearly we've got to be open-minded to that. Okay. Ownership. There's a lot of obviously focus on ownership in terms of state ownership. Government influences, obviously, they're trying to exert a degree of influence through the concept of a regulator. In that picture, where does your owner fit in? Because Tony Bloom, it seems to me, is obviously a distinctive figure, I think, to be charitable. He knows how to turn a profit outside football. He's almost a modern benefactor, isn't he, in that sense? Yeah, been many before Tony who, you know, Jack Walker at Blackburn, who, successful local businessman, loved his club, wanted to support not only the football club, but the town in which the football club's, you know, name represented. And Tony's very similar. You know, this is a, a local man who was educated locally, who supported the club all his life, whose family go back generations in terms of their influence in the club, who has done well and successfully from a, an external business that he then wanted to use as a way of, of developing the club that he supported. We've got to be careful going forward that any kind of reforms that we, we come forward with, whether it's a regulator or other kinds of um, regulation of, of that type, don't put off people like Tony Bloom from wanting to be part of the sport because we need Tony Bloom type people right the way across our game because it is an expensive game. You mentioned Formula One. Formula One's a hugely expensive mm. sport to be involved in. Top level football is no different. In fact, every level of football is expensive relative to the size of the club. So we've got to be careful we don't discourage future Tony Blooms from wanting to become involved in the game. If we look at Brighton, nearly 2,000 jobs have been directly and indirectly created as a result of his investment. This community benefits to the tune of over 250 million pounds a year because of Brighton's relative success in the Premier League. That's a lot of other jobs that have been spawned by someone like Tony Bloom's investment in the football club. And I'd like to think we've given pleasure to many, many thousands of people in this community, but also further afield who've grown to love the way we play football and the way we compete. Hmm. The underlying philosophy of the club intrigues a lot of people because it's almost, it's almost counterintuitive in its excellence. Because if you, if you think about it, just a simple business practice of succession planning, you've got that cracked here. Can you give me some details about how you do that in terms of we regularly see clubs dispense with a manager and then sort of think well what are we going to do now in business that wouldn't be allowed would it no i mean i think it, it starts from uh, the place of, of actually having a very clear vision for what we want the club to be and that goes back 
over a decade to when Tony took over the club. We met then. He had a very clear vision for the club to become a Premier League club. He wanted it to be as sustainable as possible financially. And that meant, from our point of view, actually having very clear management structures, very clear ways of doing things, more akin to, I suppose, what I would call a normal business than a football club business. And succession planning is a big part of that. And what we figured was that the more successful we became in terms of reaching our vision and, and perhaps you know, even improving on that vision, the higher profile we would become, the more interest there would be in us, the more interest there would be in our top staff and our top players recognising there's going to be that interest, you've also got to accept that at some point those players and staff will want to move on to play or work at the highest possible level, which is an entirely normal human thing to do in any industry, in any business, and football's no different in that regard. And if you accept all of that, then you've actually then got to have a plan to replace them. It shouldn't be a surprise when someone does come and take Graham Potter. It shouldn't be a surprise when someone does come and take Leo Trossard or any of the other players in our squad or, or any of our staff. So you just have to have a plan. And so what we try and do, we look at the top 20 or 25 positions in the club and positions is important because it's not just players or coaches, it's staff as well. And we try and anticipate if we were to lose them today or tomorrow, what would we do? And it's not a perfect plan because the person that you might identify as being the successor may not be available at the point that you need them to be available. Mm. So you've got to have second or third choice as well and when it happens you've then got to move quickly to try and first of all reassure the staff that this change is not going to have a, a massive impact on the club and secondly the person that we're bringing in may be different but they will add different things and new things and new energy and new enthusiasm and hopefully the work that you've done to put that plan in place then allows you to move on seamlessly and we always talk about progress is not a straight line. There will always be bumps in the road. So the key to it is how you manage the bumps in the road, mm. not so much that you're going to have them. As I say, it's not perfect. We've made mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes. We won't get every piece of recruitment right. We've recently parted company with our women's head coach. We got that recruitment wrong. We move on. We, we start again. Players have, have been, haven't worked. We've moved them on. Another part of the puzzle is sort of still to be solved. So it's not perfect, but it's a percentages game. And we work on the basis of getting a lot more right than we get wrong. And that enables us to progress. And the phone calls are just part of, you know, they come with the territory. Can we have X <laughs> or dread, Y? Yeah, I dread them. I, you know, every transfer window, you know the phone's going to ring. And, you know, when Todd Bowley called me in early September about Graham, it was a call that I wish I hadn't taken at that moment. <laughs> You look at it and you think, wow, you know, why did I pick up the call? It was never going to be a good outcome when you, you get Todd calling you early in the morning on a Tuesday. But it happens. And as I said, we have to anticipate that. We knew that Graham was doing a good job. We knew his profile was you know, being sort of raised. And, and we knew inevitably at some point, you know, a club with perhaps, you know, even bigger ambitions than our own would come along. And it happened. The importance of innovation in those circumstances, your, your recruitment's data-driven, which is becoming more standard. But there are some almost specific tweaks in it, isn't there? Where you know, scouting position specialists, you know, loan analysts, all that type of thing. Can you give, a, give me a, an overview of how important that almost spirit of innovation is in football? Because again, going back to the big picture of football, it's pretty institutionalized, isn't it? And it doesn't really accept new ideas very easily. 
Correct. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Formula One. I constantly look at what those guys are doing. And every year there's innovations, mm -hmm. there's new designs for the cars, new rules for the Grand Prix. There's all kinds of other technological enhancements to the way they compete. And in that regard, we have to be similar. If we stand still, we'll fall behind. If we can keep enhancing the way we work and changing the way we work, being prepared to try and do different things in different ways, then we've got the best chance of competing. For us, it's not just about data, it's the interpretation of that data, it's combining the data with our eyes on scouting, it's then looking at different markets and the value of players in those markets, how much we think we can improve those players and therefore ultimately how much we will be able to sell them on for, which creates profits which we can then plough back into the, the running of the rest of the club, whether that's the women and girls side of the club, Albany in the community, our charity, the infrastructure. We've recently spent large sums on this training ground that we're sitting in today to improve the facilities to drive higher performance. It's a complete process that is ongoing. And we always smile when the transfer window comes around because people think we suddenly go into recruitment mode. The reality is we're in recruitment mode all year round, every day of the year. And our focus on finding players and, and developing the players we've got never stops. Mm -hmm. We're now at the business end of the season. Wembley semi-final awaits. What would that trophy mean to the club, the fan base? Uh, you know, and probably to Gordon Smith. You know, so he wouldn't have put up with the and Smith must score for another forty years. Um, you know, that to me is a symbol of where you've got to already. How important is it to make, take the next step and actually win something? I think it, it would be really important for the club. I mean, I don't want to pile the pressure on Roberto or the players at, at, at this stage because not only have we got an FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United before a possibility of a cup final but we've also got four huge league games between now and the semi-final you know three of them away from home so we've got a lot of football to play and a lot of things to try and get through before we can think about winning a final but the club hasn't won a major trophy in its history the club has never qualified for Europe we're still only in our sixth season in the Premier League. There's a lot of new history for the club to create, and it would be fantastic, of course, if we could add some silverware to the journey that we're on and the progress that we're making. But if we were to finish this season having made more progress on last season, it would still be a success. If we can go better than that, it would be wonderful. Mm. What would making the Champions League mean to this club? <laughs> Uh, that's the territory of dreams, isn't it? I mean, that's transformational in terms of not just um, finances, although, of course, the revenues would be amazing. It would be the status and the profile that comes with that. We're not getting carried away, Mike. We're not, <laughs> we're not yet thinking of fourth and above. We're, we're, we're really trying to, to beat Brentford on Saturday. And, and then we know we've got Bournemouth, Spurs and Chelsea to follow that. So some really big games in, in the Premier League to come. Mm. The final point, really, and... By common consent, Brighton are one of the best-run clubs in the Premier League. You know, the recruitment, as we've talked about, is outstanding. You've got strategic continuity, it seems to me. You know, the management's pretty astute. What can you do better? I think there's, there's always room for improvement in top-level sport because nothing is ever standing still. So as, as, as well as we think we have done this season, we know that others are doing well as well. Brentford, Fulham doing exceptionally well. We know also that there are some of the bigger clubs, what, you know, traditionally bigger clubs, that are underperforming. And they will be looking during this next few months, and particularly over the summer, to step back and reinvent their processes and try even harder next season. So what we can do better is to make sure that we don't ever become complacent, keep being prepared to innovate, 
keep being prepared to be different, keep being prepared to communicate and engage in a way that we always have, and actually not lose touch with where we've come from either. Because I think that one of the successes of, of the club has been our humility and our ability to stay connected to the community and to the fan base that ultimately saved us 25 years ago. And I think, you know, going back to the start of this conversation, that's really important for us because there was no government at that time. Only the FA stood up for the club and only local people stood up for the club and fans united across the country, just as they did in opposition to the European Super League, to make sure one of its own didn't go out of business. We won't forget that. That's really important to us. And going forward, that's something that I hope that the club will remember for a long time to come. Mm. And do you ever think that you won't have to pick up a phone when a Todd Bowley <laughs> or um, an Amanda Staveley, whoever it is, calls? It would, be, it would be nice to think that, that we won't always get those calls at the worst possible time. <laughs> and that, you know, the, the better we are, the more successful are, we are, the easier it will be, we will be able to resist those calls. Because I don't blame players or staff for wanting to work at the highest possible level. I've been lucky enough to work at a traditionally bigger club and with the FA and, and, and been to World Cups. And therefore, I could never deny my staff wanting to do similar things, you know, compete in European football but what I hope is that we'll be able to offer that to them and therefore that then creates a different choice for them to make do I actually want to do it somewhere else or would I really like to do it here and continue the journey this club's on well, thanks for your time and um, all the best pleasure thank, thank you, you mate thanks thank you. a lot there's a real sense of history and humility that came across in that conversation, I felt. Paul, like me, you were at Hereford on that fateful day so many years ago. You've seen the progression at first hand ever since. Is the dream still alive for other clubs, as he suggested? Well, I suppose it must be, Mike, because, you know, Brighton have shown it to be true. Incidentally, at that game, in, I remember you saying to me at half-time, you a lot have had it. And I could see why, because because they were going south <laughs> before that remarkable uh, second half, which I won't go into here. But yeah, uh, 1997, near-death experience, 2023, seventh in the Premier League and in an FA Cup semi-final. That is miraculous and transformational. And you can't do that with money alone. I think that's the great point. That achievement, that near-death experience has given the club a strength, an identity in the community and in the game, which has helped it. But above all, what you've seen, in particular over the last 10 years, is is clever people, groups of clever people making clever decisions and having a long-term plan, as Paul Barber explained so well in that interview. And the remarkable thing at the moment, the, 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 the current stage of the story is that Brighton are getting buffeted about quite heavily in the transfer market particularly, and in, and in losing managers, Graham Potter, and they are recovering with remarkable speed. It, it shouldn't really be possible to lose Graham Potter and Trossard and Cucurella and Dan Byrne and Ben White and Basuma and Mope and be better than you were before. But they are better than they were before because they found new players to replace them. They found a manager who's clearly going to be one of the stars on the European circuit, Roberto De Zerbi, and they are still finding players in a hugely competitive business. I mean, just imagine how many clubs and how many scouts and agents are, are, are chasing 
the next wave of good young players and Brighton are picking out a disproportionate number of them and feeding them into their team. Particularly recently, Mitoma, Cachedo and a bit further back, McAllister, who's just won a World Cup. Not to mention, of course, Evan Ferguson, who, who looks like a seriously good young um, centre forward in the making. So there is a pattern of good decision making. There is a pattern of of, of of repairs, running repairs, if you like, when you when you get buffeted, as I said earlier on. And then, of course, the question is, can you keep doing that? Can you keep doing that for five and 10 and 15 and 20 years? And where will you end up? Seventh position in the table is, is an incredibly auspicious place to be, uh, given the nature of the league and given the fact that Brighton have all these predators um, circling them the whole time. Mm. Yeah, we touched on this earlier on, Tony, about succession planning. There was a simplicity to it, it seemed to be. You know, basically, you back up 25 key individuals within the organisation. Can you sort of talk to, to that? And also, the whole sophistication of that recruitment strategy in terms of, you know, as Paul said, probably, as a rule of thumb, 70-odd percent of players are known by everyone. They all go out there and essentially they're competing with one another for that player. Brighton have got this instinct for the unexpected or the unheralded. That's a terrific asset, isn't it? It is. And they've also got um, a slightly different scouting approach, haven't they, where they, where they have scouts that f- focus on specific positions, which I think is yeah. re- really interesting. And, and if, we're, if we're judging it on the evidence of the last... 12 months to three years it's working really well for them but Paul made it the way Paul Barber speaks is he makes things sound we talk about clarity and message all the time don't we particularly from coaches to players but I think from chief exec down and from owner down he he made it clear in that interview recruitment they're in recruitment mode all year round every day of the year it's not just when we need someone we'll go and try and find them they are looking for all of these people have contingency plans that dedication to planning and improvement underpins what they what they do and it sounds simple because ultimately it is it's just we've got into this world in football you've alluded to already where so many clubs fail to adhere to many of the basic principles that lie behind brian's rise and that is bewildering in itself what's more bewildering is as fans of the game we've come to accept that that's that level of competence is the exception to the rule it wouldn't be accepted in normal business as 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 paul barber alludes to what there's also a couple of things about barber one, he's the a, a shameless plug for Coach's Voice in here, but he's the only chief executive we've interviewed on, on the Coach's Voice. Now, it's not called the chief executive's voice, so we, it's not really our, our, our thing. But he, the, the work that he does, the work that Brighton do is so interesting that we felt we wanted, to, we wanted to talk to him. But also, he wanted to talk to us. He wanted to talk to you. And he speaks so openly about failure. You know, we talk about recruitment. He alluded in the chat with you to Jens Scheuer leaving his role as, as, as the women's head coach after about, was it, five or six games. So they don't get everything right because nobody does. But the work they do in preparing kind of multiple contingency plans for each of those 25 key positions he referred to, you just did, means they get it right more often than they get it wrong. It's just, it, it sounds incredibly simple. They do it incredibly well, miles better than almost every other club in the Premier League. And the only surprise, as you've kind of suggested before, is that Barber hasn't been snapped up too, because literally everyone else has. And the only, I think the only person Paul didn't mention there was Dan Ashworth, who was also brilliant there, and he, he's gone off to Newcastle. So, and David Weir's replaced him again. That the plan was already in place. So it's just, it's just a phenomenally well-run club. Um, 
you know, if Liverpool weren't in the mix, I'd be desperate for Brighton to finish fourth this season. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. After we'd finished recording, Paul, he said, look, I asked him a figure about how much money does the Premier League put into the pyramid? Now, he said about 100 million plus, which is correct. But, you know, there is other money does flow down into PFA, WSL, you know, which might be another 100 million or so. Who knows? But what he did say is that reform of the system is overdue and necessary. I suspect you'd agree. What would you like to see happen? Well, I guess there needs to be a proper linkage between the total revenues uh, that football generates and the rest of the pyramid. At the moment, you have this noblesse oblige culture where the Premier League, you know, almost makes donations, doesn't it? And and Paul Barber was very clear about the fact that the Premier League gives more than we think it does. But it's not, there isn't really a structure. It, it, it ultimately depends on the generosity or otherwise of, of, of Premier League clubs to help those below them. And, you know, ultimately we all feel, I think, that, that, that all this is connected. It's one game and it's connected from top to bottom. And the problem has always been, it seems to me, persuading particularly foreign owners of, of Premier League clubs that they that they have a, a an obligation, a moral obligation, a cultural obligation almost, uh, to help the rest of the pyramid. Because many of them would come into the business and say, well, what? it's not my problem what's happening in Division 2 or Division 3, as were. So why should I get involved in that? You know, why should I give people, why should I give my money away to, to smaller clubs? And... Other clubs and more enlightened clubs understand the connection and they understand the importance of that. But to me, there is no there is no national structure for that. The problem is it just depends on on as I said the the sort of the moral conscience of the Premier League and the public pressure to be generous or kind or helping and and that needs to be codified. I think a bit more clearly. Mm. Uh, you know, you mentioned Formula One several times. I loved him invoking the spirit of that sport, which is essentially stand still and you get left behind. There's a message there for football, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, football has a has a, a real talent for kind of resting on its laurels and sitting back and enjoying what it does really well because it is, in my view, the greatest sport in the world. It's, it's the only truly global sport. Everyone loves it. Everyone, well, not everyone loves it. Most people love it. Everyone across the world plays it and in in our lifetime, I can't see any sport getting anywhere near close having having the impact or the popularity that football does. But football is made up of so many different bits. And we saw, I mean, we talk about money funneling down from the Premier League to lower leagues in England. I mean, it's not that long ago, Real Madrid were insisting that the Premier League should be funding La Liga to to, <laughs> to, to help to help uh, to help uh, you know create a level of level of equality across Europe. This from a club that win the Champions League every season. So. It is a sport that always needs to be looking forward. Paul Barber, I thought, was pretty assertive in, in, in saying that there's a lot of things that are right that he believes don't need to change and we don't need to be looking to change everything and reinvent the wheel. But I think the work that Brighton have done as a microcosm of the way football is run in terms of planning well, thinking well, being sensible and not doing anything crazy is quite a nice template for football to, to take going forward. I forgot to say, Mike, when we were talking about the the pyramid, you know, the next great English midfield player, the next Brian Robson or Stephen Gerrard, is Jude Bellingham. Bellingham spent 
nine years at Birmingham City. You know, he didn't emerge into the England team or into the Borussia Dortmund team from a void. Uh, he emerged through the system and he was developed at Birmingham City and he was sold on by Birmingham City. And I think he's going to be a beacon player because he just, you know, he, he's the ultimate proof that the Premier League needs the system below it. It needs the pyramid. Mm. As a final point, and I'll probably leave it to you, Paul, as it is you know, a club that you're associated with. Paul Barber talked about Brighton having a lot of new history to create. What, in your view, are the realistic limitations of their ambitions? I do think they're in a new phase now because the survival story, the survival legacy has is you know, etched into history now. And then the question becomes, well, how far you can take this? And they are, you know, they're not looking down at where they came from anymore. They're looking up to where they might get to and how far the current formula uh, will take them. And I think the, the secret of their story has been kind of incremental progress. You could draw it on a chart very clearly, stage by stage, decision by decision, season by season. Uh, so I think logically you say, well, what's the next step? Just do the next thing on the road. And the next thing on the road is to try and get into one of those European places to finish in the top uh, seven and win a cup competition and then decide what your next target is. I, I, that's the only rational way to approach it, I think. Yeah. Well, as Tony said earlier, the reality is that Paul Barber is subjected to the same pressures and temptations as other outstanding individuals at the club. It would be naive to think his achievements haven't been noticed. Money, I reckon, is disguising executive mediocrity in the game. Football needs leaders with Barber's vision, insight and perspective. To be completely frank, I'd be more confident of the Premier League's intent and impact with him in charge. And I know you'll disagree with me on this, but returning to run the FA will be a waste of time. The future, of course, will take care of itself. It remains to me to thank Paul Barber for his insights, to apologise to Brighton fans for pointing out his qualities and to express my gratitude for having such astute panellists in Paul and Tony. <laughs>